sticks. I went back and listened to my message from last week and realized that at the beginning, I promised we would finish the book, and then we did not. I talked about it for like five minutes, and because of that, I basically robbed us of the five minutes we needed probably to finish it. But because of that, I got to see a new theme that I had missed in the last several verses of chapter 6, verse 17 through 21. So this week's message is entitled, Stewards of God's Riches. Now, many times as Christians, uh, we look at the gifts that God's given us, and we think of gifts like uh, the gift to teach, we think of the gift of helps, the gift of hospitality, um, just the ability to give gifts, uh, the gifts, gift of generosity. And there are many others that are listed in the book of 1 Corinthians. But this morning, we're going to talk about the gift of being a steward. And so before we get started in our passage, maybe put your thumb in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Romans, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians chapter 4. And in verse 11, it says this, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. All of these are for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth of the body, of the edifying, or that's a fancy word that means strengthening of itself in love, that we may no longer be children, but that we may come to maturity as individual believers, but we all do it in the corporate setting as the church. We all are connected to the head if we are in Christ, and being connected to the head, we then have gifts supplied by the head, by Jesus himself. And so whether you realize it or not, at salvation, God not only convicted you of your sin, but once you repented and received his free gift of salvation, he then gives to the church gifts to strengthen the rest of the body of Christ. So we all have some sort of gift. In 1 Peter, Peter refers to it, the, to the manifold uh, gifts of God. Picture it, I always picture it like an engine, where uh, a manifold is something that brings everything together into one tube. If you have exhaust coming out of your engine, it all goes into four separate pipes if you've got a four-cylinder, and then it goes to one collected area and goes out the back. Except in this case, it's the intake. We all from many different points of view, receive what Jesus gives to us, and then it's all funneled into one section where we all supply to one another in some form or fashion. Now, many times when you hear gifts of the Spirit, you hear uh, gifts that are mainly spiritual. 
But in this case, today we're going to talk about how God gives gifts to his church uh, to be stewards over. One is going to be money, and one is going to be faith. So I wrote down for you a couple of things about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Number one, God gives gifts to his church. Number two, these gifts are for the equipping and the preparing for the saints for the work that he gives us to do. Now, maybe you don't think that your job or what God's given to you to do the majority of your time with is really a ministry to the Lord. But every one of us gets to worship the Lord with what we do. Worship isn't just a song we sing. It's the life that we live. And we can live it whether we work in a, in a garage on cars. We can work it whether we're a welder or whether we're a nurse or whether you're a teacher. Whatever it is you do, you get to serve God in that way. Maybe you're retired. You get to serve God with your retirement. You know? And so um, God gives gifts to the church and he uses it for his purpose. Uh, to strengthen the body of Christ. And the main purpose is that our faith is brought to maturity and we become more like our Savior. If you say you are following Christ, but you're not like Christ at all, or at least growing and becoming more like Christ, I would question whether or not you actually are a Christ follower. And then he says, uh, then I put there for you, Jesus is the source of the gifts and he picks who gets them. He only gives good gifts, but he gets to pick. So if you're bummed out because your gift, you see it as something that may not feel like it's something that's a huge blessing, that's okay because God gave you the gift that you have. He just wants you to be a faithful steward of it. He wants you to use it uh, his way. His supply is used under his guiding and it will affect others. And he gives us gifts that affect others inside and outside of the church. And did you know that this includes those who are rich? Now, in the last chapter in 1 Timothy, he's already warned that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But does that mean that having financial wealth is evil in and of itself? Well, I would submit to you that that would not be a scriptural view because God gives to us all that we need and to those of us that he gives more, and I think that all of us have a little bit more than we need. Maybe that's my opinion and you disagree with it. But he says godliness with contentment is great gain. So he's, in our nation, think about it this way, we have more, even on the lowest averages of our income as a nation, we have more than most nations in the entire world. And many of us, whether we think this way or not, probably are able to do more than we actually need. He says, with these things, we are to be content with food and with covering. Now, some people, I said a couple weeks ago, think about that as food and clothing, and some think of covering as more than just clothing, but also a place over our head. Um, but he says we are to be content with these things. So we all have a little extra. But he says here uh, in this passage in Ephesians, basically, um, I would submit to you, that we, many of us, are gifted financially. But look at this. Not everyone is commanded to do what the rich young ruler was commanded to do. Many times we read that passage. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, you can turn there if you want, or you can read it later. But in Matthew chapter 19, there's a young man who comes to Jesus and says, What may I do that I may inherit eternal life? looking at it as, as, a, as a practical way. Like, what, a, what are the 10 boxes I got to check off my bucket list in order to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus looks at this young man and I believe gives a very specific prescription for him. He, he knows his heart. Only Jesus can know our hearts. And he says to him, I want you to go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. But I would also submit to you that that is not for everyone. He doesn't call all of us to sell everything and give to the poor. That young man's response to Jesus was, he was greatly saddened. He turned and he walked away because Jesus knew that he loved his riches and his financial gains and his stuff more than he loved God. And as a result of that, he had closed his heart off to giving to anyone who had need. He, he had received everything that he wanted to in this life, but he knew some, something was still missing. And so he went to Jesus looking for answers. Jesus gave him the answer, but he didn't receive it. He's like, well, that, I'll do anything, but I won't do that. I said that a couple weeks ago. I want a little meatloaf. I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. So then we get to First uh, Timothy this week and look at this. In verse 17 of chapter 6, and the next slide there, um, he says in verse 17, he says, command those who are rich in this present age to get rid of their wealth. Does he say that? No, he gives them specific instructions. He wants those who are in Timothy's church in Ephesus, which we just read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he wants them to use their wealth and to have right relationship with it. It's not evil, but it's a gift. And so if it is a gift from God, how are we to interact with that gift, that provision that he's given us? He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Uh, don't be prideful, but be humble. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but instead in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And then he says, let them do good that they be, excuse me, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So let's unpack that. Number one, he says, teach those who are rich in this present age to be humble. Be humble. Many times, unfortunately, what happens is if you have someone, it, it, maybe you're one of those people where you kind of get to the point, as, even as a, as a Missourian, and you say, hey, everything I have is because of all that I've done. But I, I as a hardworking man, I work at a company that pays me well to be an engineer. But I will tell you, by the grace of God, I am in this spot. Now, I could tell you specific reasons why it wasn't me. I could tell you about how low my GPA was because I partied in college. I could tell you all the instances where I should have been failed and I wasn't in classes. I can tell you how, you know, teachers had lots of grace on me. Uh, but my point is, is that while, yes, those people all did things for me, I will tell you that it was because of the grace of God. He knew what it was going to take for me to be broken enough to realize I needed Jesus as my Savior. Because until that point, I was a pull myself up by my own bootstraps and make it happen kind of guy. That's how I was raised. You work hard, you play hard, and you deserve what you get. That's great and dandy until you weren't raised in a, hard, uh, in a home that taught you that. Then what? Well, God is gracious. God is merciful. God provides. And so um, off a of track a little bit, but he says there, tell them not to trust in their riches, 
but to trust in God who provides for all of us to be able to enjoy. He says, trust God. I put there for you, trust God, the giver of all good gifts, not in wealth. Wealth is only the gift. But if we worship the gift instead of the gift giver, what we find out is the gift can be taken away because what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have nothing else that takes your, your time, your wealth, your, your talents. Because um, the problem is, is that many times if we trust in our wealth, we will do anything to keep it, including breaking commandments to do so. So trust God, the giver, not wealth, the gift. Luke chapter 12 is a good illustration of this. Imagine that, a good illustration that is a parable spoken of by the Son of God. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said this, Therefore I say to you, oh, sorry, go back to verse 16. He says there in verse 16, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I will build bigger barns. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, look at this, he's, he's talking to his soul. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Why don't you take ease? eat, drink, and be merry. And so he has a problem, right? This is a problem we would all love to have. I worked this year, the ground provided for me, and it's way more than I need. And so he says within himself, you've worked hard, you deserve this. Let's build bigger barns so we got enough room to hoard all our stuff. And let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. He said, this life's really vain anyway, so let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not a Christian thought. That's the world's thought. We're going to die tomorrow anyway. Let's live it up. But what the next verse says is interesting, verse 20. But God said to him, you are foolish. For this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will those things be which you have provided? In other words, you've got all this stuff, you've stored it up, but what you don't know is that tomorrow's not promised. Therefore, what good is it going to do you anyway? So in verse 21, it says, so, he, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He's not condemning the man for having. He's just telling him, hey, the way that you're living doesn't do what God's purpose is. God is the one that makes your soil fertile. God is the one that gives extra increase. What's interesting is we just read this morning, if you're reading the Bible study together, in Isaiah chapter 32, there's a passage where it says that though they had recently rejected God, he sent them away to captivity, and in the meantime, Jerusalem has grown up into this wilderness area. Like if you left your yard for six months and came back, it would all be grown up and 10 feet tall, briars and weeds and trees overgrown and fences broke over. And he said to them, now that you're back, there's going to be a time where even though the place that you now live is a waste place, I'm going to bless and make the ground fertile. Wherever you sow seed, things will grow. I'm going to make you fruitful. 
which is an amazing promise because they knew they didn't deserve it. They had been sent to captivity. They'd been disciplined by the Lord because they had ignored him and gone after other gods, whether it was financial wealth, fertility, uh, the gods that would help them win wars against their enemies. They had rejected the true God and started worshiping false gods. And so God, to show them that they were doing wrong, sent them to captivity, a timeout with, as you will. He took the gift away from them. He gave them the land of Israel. He said, I'm going to send you off to Babylon. And then he brought them back and he made them fruitful once again. And so we could take heed from that word that if God has given us good gifts and we don't use it for him, Sometimes he takes them away so that we'll see we're worshiping the gift instead of the giver. And so, also notice what he says there. Teach the wealthy, those who are rich in worldly goods, to enjoy what God supplies. Did you know that God gives us gifts? He gives us financial wealth. He gives us stuff so that we'll enjoy it. God's not a killjoy. He's not up there going, oh, they're having fun again. Strike them down. He's not. I've been to church for many years, not as long as a lot of you have, but for a long time I really thought God wanted to take fun stuff away. And as I'm growing in the Lord, I'm finding out that I can't always afford everything that I'd like to do, but the things that I do have, when I'm content with them, and I go and use them, and enjoy them, and give thanks to God for them, I actually enjoy them more than I ever did. The most fun we have right now as a family but the two-year-old and the four-year-old is getting in our Jeep and going for a drive. When we were all like in quarantine last week with the hand, foot, and mouth, we were pretty bummed. But we could get in the Jeep, take the doors off, and go for a drive. We couldn't stop anywhere and see anybody because nobody wants that kind of leprosy going on. Uh, but, but we could go drive. So we drove down E-Highway. We went to the gas station, got all like $20 worth of gas station food, which was way much more than we needed, but it was fun. The kids were happy. We drove down the highway. We got on C Highway, which is the curviest road in the world, but it's fun to drive. It's beautiful. And then we went and saw some relatives at the, at the, the cemetery because it's Memorial Day. I guess it was last Monday. But my point is, we were able to give thanks as we drove. We were able to enjoy what God's given us. We were sick, but we had joy. We were enjoying what God provided. And I think sometimes we look at God as just this one that's always trying to make us work. But I think sometimes we need to find rest for our souls. Sometimes that rest is just being content. Just stopping, enjoying, and giving thanks. That's a Sabbath, you know? So, enjoy what God supplies. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 35... We have Paul speaking to the Ephesian church there, the elders. Um, and I can't remember where, let's see. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. <laughs> Notice this. It's, it says there, Paul speaking to the elders, says, I have shown you in every way, by laboring the way I have, that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so if you have financial wealth, even a little bit more than you need, take it and give it away. He said, you will be blessed. The word there for blessed means, oh, how happy. And in Psalm chapter one, he uses that word over and over. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. But in his ways he meditates on the Lord day and night. Blessed is that man. So if you want to take the financial wealth, and instead of it being a burden to you, which it can be if you're trying to manage your finances, give some of it away. Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. You'll find joy in your material wealth. And go to the next slide, please, Stephen. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, Bible drill, go. It says this, he who has pity on the poor is actually lending to the Lord. He who has pity on the poor, Proverbs 19, verse 17, lends to the Lord, and look at this, he will pay them back what he has given. If you lend to someone that's poor, that can't pay you back, you're lending to the Lord. And when you do that, he's going to be the one to pay you back. It may not be financially, but it may be in blessing and joy. It, it might be eternally. You may not ever see any of it back. But God gives back with interest. If you read uh, Malachi, I think it's Malachi chapter 3. So, what to do with worldly riches? How can I do good? He says, do good with worldly riches. What does that mean? Well, uh, a couple of examples I have for you. Use what God supplies for eternal deposits. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, he says, don't uh, store up your treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy. He says, but take that wealth that you have and, and store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Now, the question becomes, how rich do I have to be able to do that? But I would submit to you, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We have a woman here who does this, who doesn't have much. Mark chapter 12. It's a familiar passage in verse 41. It says there that Jesus sat opposite the treasury... And he noticed this. He says, it says there, and saw how the people put money into the treasury. It doesn't say that he saw what they put in. It says how the, he saw the, how they put it in there. And I always found that interesting because Jesus does notice what we give. He's watching. I always try not to even look at the box back there because I don't want to notice. I want that to be between everyone and the Lord. I don't want to be stumbled by that or not stumbled. Uh, but at the same time, Jesus was sitting at the temple and had a treasury box there. And as he was sitting, he didn't notice what people put in. He noticed how they put it in. God loves a cheerful giver. And so he noticed that there were many scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, and they would put in. And some of them, believe it or not, would put it in as noisily as they could. They'd bring it in coin. So they'd go, plink plink, plink. And that's one of the reasons that we don't use those little, we don't hand out, you know, we don't, we don't pass the plate because many times people give just because they know everybody's watching. Especially if they got the, one of those metal ones. You, you put change in there. You know, like, hey man, he really gave. But God noticed how they gave. And look at this. It says, um, one poor widow, verse 42, came and threw in two mites, 
which came to a quadrant. Now, I don't know what that means, but it's not very much. It's just pennies compared to what everybody else was giving. So he called his disciples to himself. He saw a teachable moment, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who gave to the treasury. For they put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. She didn't have present wealth. She didn't have worldly wealth. So she was making deposits in a place where she knew she would be able to not lose on her investment. She gave to the Lord. And in her giving to the Lord, she gave till it hurt. She wasn't just giving a little bit. She gave a good portion because she was trusting in eternal riches instead of present riches. Now, so my question was, do I have to be rich to do this? And my answer, according to what Jesus said there, is no. Give in proportion to what you have. So, be ready to give, be willing to share. So I have a few verses for you there. In Ephesians chapter 4, we already did the Proverbs one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We won't hit all these, because uh, if you want to, you can write them down and look them up later. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says this, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. I I think that's an interesting passage because many times, and I've said this many times, but I repeat it for emphasis, The fact that many times as believers and as churches, we kind of tell people to stop doing bad things. Like that's the goal of the Christian life, to stop being bad. But the goal of the Christian life is to become more like the one who saved us. And one of the ways that we can do that is if you were someone who used to steal, instead of stealing, now give. Instead of stealing, now earn righteously, do it legally, but then take from the abundance that God's given you and give to those who have need. And so we end up being a blessing and we end up being like the Lord. Uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, to the left, he says this, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So support your local church. If it's not here, wherever it is, provide for those who are teaching you it spiritually. Um, And then he also says there in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, and this is one of my favorites, turn to the right. If you hit James, keep going a couple chapters. Oh, excuse me. If you hit James, go back a couple chapters. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. He says, therefore, by him... By Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So to to regularly worship God with the fruit of our lips is important. But don't stop there. He says, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So take the fruit of your labor and don't just worship God with your mouths, but take the abundance he provides for you and give to others who have needs. And in so doing, we become like the one who saved us. 
And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 says this. Start in verse 16. He says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So it's one of the ways that we can tell if we truly have the heart of God uh, in the way that we give. And uh, so use worldly goods. Last part of the passage says this, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So my question for you, and this is kind of the pushback I had from this verse, wait a minute, so you mean I can use my earthly wealth to earn eternal life? Isn't that kind of like indulgences? Isn't that kind of like what they used to do back in Martin Luther's day where uh, people were buying repentance? They had enough money, and so they'd go to the, the, the priest or whatever, and they would pay money, and in so doing, they'd be forgiven. Is that how God gets us right with him, through money? Absolutely not. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You cannot purchase forgiveness. You cannot purchase salvation. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages, what we earn from our sin, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. So Romans chapter 6, verse 23 kind of debunks that thought. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, I believe, what's taught by Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. Sorry, I know there's a lot of Bible drill going on this morning, but there's just so many verses on uh, the way that we have a relationship with money. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Look at this. Jesus speaking says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of God. This is the throne of judgment. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides a sheep from the goats. Now, when I went to Israel, one of the things I noticed is that sheep and goats, actually, they just keep them together all the time. They don't separate them until they get ready to sell them. And so they divide between the sheep and the goats. And there's a stark contrast between goats and sheep. Um, goats are really dirty. They're really ornery. Sheep are very clean animals. They, they, you know, it's just totally different. We can get to that at another point. But he, just as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats would be a perfect picture for them to understand this judgment that Jesus is talking about because there was probably a field right close to where he was teaching where they were doing just that. But he, he, it says there in verse 33, he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, 
You did it to me. So you're lending to the Lord. There's that idea again. Then he will also say to those on the left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And we did not minister to you. And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, my point is, the way that we use this world's goods to either bless or not bless those who are in need shows who we're really trusting in, right? And in some ways, by our fruit, we will be known. And so in that way, God will judge us, not just according to what we say we are, but how we live out who we are. And so um, that's about riches. Next slide, verse 20. He says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So real quickly, as we finish up, he says, guard the deposit. We just got done talking about worldly riches. Now he's going to talk about the eternal riches we've been given. He says, guard the deposit. Now, you guys have seen the big armored trucks that pull up outside the bank. You put your money in that bank, and you are trusting that it's insured and that the, depart, the, the deposit will be guarded, right? You don't put it in there thinking it's less safe than if you kept it in your mattress. You say, I'll put it in the bank because there it's safe. They'll protect it right? Well, in the same way, he's saying, Timothy, you've been given this deposit that is priceless. Guard it. He sa- so what is, that, what is that deposit? I would submit to you that it's actually in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 18. He says there, uh, asking Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, well, you're the son of the living God. You're, you're the Messiah, you're, you're the prince of peace. He, he, he gives this confession. So this confession is what Jesus then tells him, you're going to, this confession, on the rock of this confession, I will build my church. He says, you, Peter, are a little rock. And of many rocks, he's going to build the church. The church is in this building. It's built up out of living souls. But those living souls have each had this deposit given to them. So the deposit given to Timothy was given from Paul. The deposit given to Paul was given by Jesus. Paul spent time specifically with Jesus in the back side of the desert. So he says, Timothy, guard what you've been entrusted with. You have been given a precious gift. Guard it. Now, is he telling him to put it in the mattress and forget about it and don't tell anybody about it? I think that guarding our deposit of the faith is one of, number one, being a good steward of what you've been given. So taking it and using that deposit and depositing it into other people's lives. Think about it. If someone gives you money and you just hold on to it, you've got it. But if you don't use it, it's no good, right? 
But if you put it even in a savings account, it draws interest. So you're making an investment. In the same way as believers, we've been given an investment in what Jesus has done for us. And so he says, find someone who you can entrust with this same deposit. Now, don't just give it to them without explaining it to them. Prepare the recipient. And in Matthew chapter 16, he goes on there in verse 19. I'm going to go there so I don't misquote it. Matthew 16, verse 19. He says, after saying that, you know, he says, verse 18, I also say to you, Peter, that you are Peter, Petros means little rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Messiah, because it was not yet his time to be publicly known. But he says, I'm going to give the keys of the kingdom to you, Peter. Now think about this. Graduation just happened. A lot of people are graduating from school. And they always, right at graduation, they do that whole thing where they bring in the highway patrol. At least they did in Farmington. And they said, look, you're adults now. You're going to be responsible as adults. You're going to go to prom. You're going to do this and that. Uh, but we want to show you what happens when people drink and drive and they're not responsible with the keys to the truck or the car. Then they show you, they simulate an accident, and they show you, they try to play out what it's going to look like. They dramatize it, and it's horrendous. If you think about the reality of what happens when someone dies in a car wreck that you went to high school with, or that's your baby, you know, and many times people give their kids keys to a vehicle that is worth $60,000 and has tires the size of my house, and they're like, hey, just go drive it, but they don't spend any time warning them of the responsibility and the things that can be caused grave errors if they don't use it the right way. And so in many ways, we give the keys of the kingdom. We tell people about salvation, but we don't let them know how important it is that they use this freedom they've been given in Christ the right way. Because if we use this freedom in Christ the wrong way, it can actually cause people to not walk with the Lord. It can re- cause them to reject the faith, thinking that what we're doing is faith, when really what it is is it's license to sin, which has never been given to us by God. So he says, I've entrusted you with this deposit, uh, entrusted to others. And he says, reject false teaching. Important in, in his day because there were many false teachers. He says, reject, avoid the profane and idle babblings and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. One commentary I read said, the godless mixture of contradictory notions. Many people claim to follow Christ, but when you look at what they actually believe about Christ, none of it is in Scripture. It completely backs down from the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and He shall have final authority over your life. And really what they're doing is they're under the, lice, under the banner of I'm a Christian, they're doing all kinds of stuff that Jesus is not okay with and He does not condone. So anything that disagrees with the good confession. So last slide, Stephen. So let me ask you, as we've talked about eternal riches, and we've talked about worldly riches, what are you doing with what God has given you? What have you done with what God has given you? Talents, gifts, worldly riches, money, and heavenly riches. 
Are you investing what he's given you? Are you investing the worldly wealth he's given you in providing for those who can't provide for themselves uh, or in, in providing for the kingdom? And are you taking the heavenly riches, this glorious gift of salvation we've been given free of charge? He's given us the license to give it to others and tell others that they can be set free from slavery of sin and the power of sin. Are you taking that and giving it to others who don't know about it, who are lost, just like you once were? Are you living as a steward, someone who doesn't own this stuff but has privilege to be a steward over it? Are you living as a steward of what God has given you, or are you still living as if you are the Lord over these areas of your life? That's the question I have. And we all have to pray through these things because it won't look the same in each one of our lives. It just won't. Not all of us have the same financial wealth. Not all of us have the same background. Not all of us have the same testimony. Your testimony is a gift from God. Are you sharing it with others? So, as you think about this, don't be drawn away from the Lord. Uh, Don't be feeling condemned, feel convicted. There's some way in your life that God's prompting you to give it over to Him, whether it's financially or whether it's in the way that you're sharing the deposit that's been given to you. Uh, Think about that. Lord, how do you want me to use this gift you've given me? So next slide. This morning we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and I would want